John chapter 5, starting verse 1. John says, after this, there was a, this is meaning after Jesus healed the royal official son from a couple weeks ago. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there in, is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in, in, in these roofed colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, uh, while I'm, while I'm going, uh, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And at once... At once, don't miss that, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. So in the first few verses of this chapter, John, the apostle who writes this gospel, he describes a pool called Bethesda, which has five, five roofed colonnades, so five roofs, right? And he says that the pool is near the Sheep Gate, which is located in the northeastern part of the city of Jerusalem. You can still go there today. Stephanie, we've walked right through the Sheep Gate before. And well, for many years, and for centuries actually, this description of this pool called Bethesda with five roofed colonnades, this description used to bother New Testament scholars to no end. Like it used to frustrate them because this place didn't exist. It's not mentioned in any first century writings. There's no record of this pool ever having existed except for right here in John chapter 5. And a five-roofed colonnade just doesn't jive with what scholars understood the architecture of Jerusalem to be in the first century. And so many scholars in the 19th century just concluded that because of this, John's gospel wasn't reliable. And they, they, they essentially threw it out. They said there's no way that whoever wrote this could have been an actual eyewitness to the life of Jesus because this place doesn't exist. And this type of architecture doesn't exist. And so they concluded, John didn't write this. It was probably somebody else much, much later that didn't know anything about Jerusalem. We should throw out the gospel of John. It's not reliable. And you're like, uh-oh, or why are we preaching this, you know? Well, in 1888, some archaeologists, just near the Sheep Gate, which is now located in the Muslim quarters of the old city of Jerusalem, they dug up a large pool, and there were remains of pillars that would have held up five roofed colonnades. And I think we even have a picture of this place. I've been there. I was there like a year ago. <laughs> and so for centuries, the point I'm trying to make is that for centuries, a church had been built over the top of the remains of this. And so what Mo, and, and then when, they just, when the church was torn down, they found these pools underneath it, and they said, wait a second, this guy in John's got, John's got, John describes this exactly the way, it, way they found it, you know, nearly 2,000 years later. And what most likely happened is that this pool and the colonnade, the roof, roofed colonnades were probably destroyed in A.D. 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and just took everything out. And so that's why there was very little historical record after Jesus. In fact, John probably wrote his gospel after Jerusalem had been destroyed. 
And so it didn't even exist at the time that he wrote his gospel, but he was speaking of something that he knew existed because he had been there and seen this. The point I'm trying to make is this. What was once presented as evidence that you cannot trust the Bible as historically reliable is now evidence for the historical reliability of the Bible. I tell you that because that should give us a little bit of confidence today as we open up the scriptures that this is a historical, reliable account of what Jesus did and said when he was living on earth. That's cool, isn't it? All right. And so if the Bible is reliable, then what it tells us about Jesus is important. And what does it tell us about Jesus? And in this passage, it tells us a few things. The first thing it tells us about Jesus is that Jesus is gracious and compassionate. This pool was called Bethesda, which literally means house of grace. I love that. Like, I mean, if we were to change the name of our church, like Bethesda, that'd be a cool name. House of Grace, that's a cool name for a church, right? It's at this pool where a paralyzed man experienced the grace of Jesus up close. You see, here's what's so beautiful about this encounter. Jesus, you know, Jesus was in Jerusalem. We don't really know. He's there for a feast. We don't really know which feast it was. But Jesus shows up to Jerusalem. It's a festival, so there's, the city is bustling. But Jesus doesn't go to the place where, every, where all the party is. He goes to the place of great need. He goes to the place where there's a bunch of needy, helpless people begging for help. Jesus doesn't, and, and this doesn't just happen by accident. Jesus intentionally goes through this gate and to this pool for a purpose. He chose to go there. Just like he chose to go to Samaria to find the woman at the well, Jesus chooses to go to the places of suffering and pain in this world in order to extend his grace and compassion. Listen, when I go visit a city, I don't know about you, but I don't go to the slums when I go visit a new city, do I? I, I usually go out of my way to avoid the uncomfortable places. But Jesus is not like me, praise God. Jesus goes to the place of great need. And verse 3 says, there was a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This was a sad sight. And most people would have said, whoa, whoa, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. But Jesus, he hits Jerusalem, and the first place he goes is the place of great need. And listen, we can all say we can all put it on our social media accounts, and we can all say with our lips, hey, everyone matters. Everyone is equal. I love everyone the same. But you know, Jesus really believed this, and Jesus really showed this. Jesus, re Jesus really does not show favoritism. He really doesn't. He's not impressed with status. He's not intimidated by sinners. He's not disgusted by failures. Jesus shows compassion and grace toward everyone. Think about the Gospel of John so far. He showed compassion to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader. He shows compassion to a marginalized Samaritan divorcee. He shows compassion to a royal official. And here he shows compassion to a paralyzed man that, that begs on the edge of the city every day. See, Jesus ministers all across the social spectrum. And that means that no matter who you are this afternoon, whether you're watching online or whether you're in this room today, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what family you come from, what you look like, whatever failures are in your life, it does not matter who you are, the grace of Jesus is extended to you. You are not excluded 
from the gracious hand and invitation of Jesus. You might be excluded from all sorts of other types of people. You might be excluded from all other types of relationships, but the invitation to be loved by Jesus and to find a home in his kingdom is available to you. Verse 6 says, when Jesus saw this man lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he, said, he says, do you want to be healed? I love it. It says, Jesus, like he knows. And he walked through the sheep gate and he saw that. There's, it said there's multitudes. There's, there's hundreds probably of people at this pool. And he sees this one guy and it says that he knew that that man had been there a long time. Jesus knew this man's pain, which means that Jesus knows your pain. Even in church, I know that sometimes you can sit surrounded by people and you can feel like no one really understands the pain you feel, the misery you've experienced. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes even in church, we just can't, we don't know. But Jesus does. He knows your misery. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. And you need to know today that Jesus is always moved by compassion when he sees his children in pain. And he moves towards you, not away from you in your suffering. Jesus is gracious and compassionate. Another thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is powerful where we are powerless. The text says that this man's been waiting, uh, this man has been disabled for 38 years. And it's, Jesus says that, it says that Jesus knew this man had been waiting at this pool for a long time. We don't know how long he was at that pool, but it's been a long time. Now, why was he at a pool? Verse 7 gives us a little bit of a hint. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going uh, down, another steps down before me. Okay, there was a belief at the time among all the, uh, among all the people at this pool, the disabled people in this city, that when the waters of this pool stirred, perhaps through an underground spring, and some thought it was an angel that would stir it at, from time to time, there was a belief that there was healing power in the water. And that when the water began to stir, when, as it occasionally did, the first person who got in the water would be healed. And so that's why this man says, when the water stirs up, I try to get in, but somebody gets in before me. And this man, he's, he's paralyzed. And he's been there for 38, or he's, he's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he's been coming to this pool for years and years. And he indicates that every time he tries to get in, somebody jumps in front of him. And he just can't get into the pool, and he just wants to be healed. And no one will help him. Can you imagine how helpless of a feeling that would be? Like, what a powerless feeling. 38 years of disability, and he's like, I keep trying. I keep trying to get in, but people keep pushing me away, and they jump in front of me in line. This is total powerlessness. Can you imagine how frustrating and how humiliating this might have been and how easy it would have been for this man to become bitter and angry? And Jesus comes on the scene, and he just simply says, hey, do you want to be healed? Take up your bed and walk. And at once, the Bible says, he was healed and took up his bed and walked. Decades of feeling completely powerless, at once Jesus speaks healing into this man's life. And I hope this encourages you today, all these areas, because all these areas of our lives where we feel helpless. I know you've got this in your life. I've got areas in my life where I, like, I just feel helpless. I feel powerless to change or I feel helpless to like, make any meaningful, like my situations just leave me feeling powerless. 
Man, this whole year with the pandemic, like, I've just felt like I've had no control over anything. You know, we've all felt that, right? And you're like, when I feel powerless, it can easily frustrate me and make me angry. But where we feel powerless, that is where Jesus speaks his greatest blessing. One of the things we see throughout all the scriptures and even here is that if you want to experience Jesus' power, you must admit where you are weak. And when you admit where you're weak and where you're powerless, that is where Jesus' strength shines through most brightly. The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Did you hear what Paul says? Paul says, where I am weak, that is where Jesus displays his greatest power in my life. Listen, this man at this pool on this day, he expresses to Jesus where he's powerless. I'm paralyzed. Everybody's jumping into this pool. I can't move, and nobody will help me because they're all trying to help themselves. I feel powerless. This man expresses where he, he feels weak and where he feels like he can do nothing to change his situation, and it's right there where Jesus does his work in this man's life. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once he was healed. Listen, I know that every single one of you in this room is struggling with something in your life where you feel powerless. It's just the way it goes. You're all struggling. Maybe it is, maybe you have a disability like this man. And you're just like, God, why? And it, it, it may, you may just be frustrated that maybe you've got a family member or a friend who is sick and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, you can't heal them, and you feel frustrated by that. Maybe it's in your own personal life. You've got a habit in your life or a sin in your life that you're trying to overcome, and you just feel completely powerless to change. We all have areas where we feel powerless, and we all hate to be weak, don't we? We hate to feel powerless. And often in our weakness, Instead of confessing it to God and letting God's strength and his power speak into our weakness, we often just try to grasp for control and we give in to fear and anxiety and we become angry and we become bitter, right? So let me just speak to the parents for a moment. In the last several months, I've noticed in our church people emailing me, text messages, conversations, and even in our group chats and our growth group leaders have expressed this. Um, a lot of people in our church right now um, who are parents feel powerless. Um, this has been a hard year to be a parent. Remote learning, all these health and safety concerns, you're trying to do what's best for your kid, but you're also trying to balance working with a kid at home and your spouse is trying to work and you're all in the house and it's just crazy and you're kind of going insane. And many of you have reached out and you've requested prayer in various mediums in our church and you've said, look, I, I, I need prayer because I find myself being impatient and harsh with my children in this season. Because I just feel like I've got nothing. I can't, I can't fix this problem. And listen, I know that in my own soul, here's how it works for me. Um, I, when I feel completely helpless because of all, when I feel helpless because of circumstances that I don't have control of, it makes me afraid. It makes me anxious. And so particularly on this issue, when I approach my kids 
when I wake up in the morning, when I come home from work or whatever, when I come, when I approach my children, a lot of times I have all sorts of emotions going on in the background of my soul. Fear for my children, anxiety for my children, frustration that I'm not in control of a pandemic, you know. And so I come in, I've got all these fears, all these anxieties playing, you know, so loudly in the background of my soul. And then when my children don't behave exactly the way I want them to, and they don't respond exactly the way I hoped they would, it triggers all my fears and anxieties. And what comes out of me is that I power up. Instead of humbly, graciously dealing with my children, I power up and try to grab the, in the I, know, I realize all these areas where I'm powerless, and so what I try to do is I try to grasp for control in the things that I do have power over. And I project my anxiousness, I project my fear onto my children, and what happens is I can become unnecessarily impatient or easily frustrated with them. And I know I'm not alone because many of you parents have expressed the same thing. And you can translate that to any other struggle in your life. When we feel powerless, we often try to grasp for control, and that usually leads us away from the way of Jesus. You know what I mean? When you start trying to grasp, I, I can't control what's going on at work, so I can control this little area of my life. It's private. Nobody has to know about it. It's my little thing. I can control this. And so we justify doing these things because we feel powerless in other areas of our lives, and we can inflict some sort of power, we think, in these areas. And so when we feel powerless, we grasp for whatever power we can find, and it, and it makes us easily frustrated and angry. But Jesus says there is a better way. Jesus says when you are powerless, that is where my power can be shown through you. Listen, I'm not saying there's a quick fix, but I'm simply saying that the Bible says where we are weak, he is strong. And the Bible also says that if we are walking by his spirit, we will be people of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, um, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, your life will produce those things. And so if you want to experience the power of Jesus to change, you must admit your weakness, your fear, your anxieties, give them to him, and allow Jesus to be strong where you are weak. This man in this story confessed his powerlessness, and Jesus' power was displayed through him. You see, when we are powerless, that is where Jesus does his most powerful work in us. And that would be great if that was the end of the story, right? But there's more. Look at verse 9. It says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, uh, the, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is this man who said that to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found this man in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man immediately went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Next thing I want you to see is that Jesus heals for a purpose. There's always a purpose to Jesus' healing in our lives. 
See, every last bit of healing and grace that is extended to us is for a purpose. Let me show you what I mean. So the religious leaders, they find out that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, and this just sets them off. And they they begin to question this man who's now healed. And we're going to talk a little bit about this next week. But for today, what we need to notice is that immediately after Jesus healed this man, Jesus withdraws because it was a big crowd. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. But then Jesus later goes back and finds the man in the temple, and he says, hey, man, I see you. You're well. You're walking. You're no longer paralyzed. That's awesome. And then Jesus says to him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And you're like, whoa, what is Jesus saying there? Well, to be clear, Jesus is not saying, if you sin, I'll punish you even worse than whatever you had before. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying to this man is, hey, I healed you of your paralysis, but I wasn't finished with you. I'm not finished with you. There's more that I am offering to you. I didn't heal you only so that you could walk. I healed you so that you could know me and follow me and so that I could give you abundant and eternal life. You see, New Testament scholars often talk about Jesus' healing miracles. Uh, They say that when Jesus heals someone, there is often what they call a double healing. So there's the healing itself, which is a good thing, right? This man was paralyzed. Now he can walk. That's a great thing. But there is, Jesus intends for there also to be a greater healing that goes beyond just that, the physical. So think about the last two healings we've seen in the Gospel of John. There was the royal official's son from a couple of weeks ago. Jesus healed the boy from 20 miles away with a word. And when the man got back to his son and saw that his son was healed, the text says that he, it was then that he believed he and his household. So the double healing there is that Jesus healed the man's son, but he also healed the man and his family's soul. When they saw that Jesus healed their son, they said, this must be that he's the one. This is the Messiah who's come to save us. And they entered into a saving relationship with Jesus. There's a double healing. His son was healed from sickness, and the whole family, their souls were healed. And then you think about the Samaritan woman at the well. She didn't have a physical sickness. It wasn't that kind of healing. But she had emotional and relational wounds. She was marginalized. She was an outcast. And Jesus healed her soul. He spoke life into her life that was broken, and he welcomed her. And what did she do? The very next thing she did was she ran into town and started telling everybody about her experience with Jesus. And they all come into town, they see him, and it says that they confess that he was the Savior of the world. There's a double healing going on there. You see that? He heals this woman from her brokenness, but then he heals this whole community of their sins, and they see him as the Savior of the world. And this is what I want us all to recognize today, is that the reason Jesus has extended his grace and his kindness to you and his salvation to you, if you're here and you're a Christian and you can say, God has saved me, he did not do that just so that you could go to heaven one day when you die. He saved you not just so that you can get better, not so that you can kind of self-actualize or whatever. He saved you so for two reasons, so that you will know him more deeply and so that you will extend his grace to others. Jesus heals with other things in mind. He heals you because he loves you. That's the, that's the first healing. But then there's another healing. He, he transforms your life so that you have a relationship with him and so that you will go out and make, others, make him known to others. Jesus heals you so that you can live a life of healing toward others. This is why we recite Matthew 28 every week. 
to remind ourselves that we've been saved by a gracious God, but His salvation is not meant to terminate with us. It's meant to be poured out for the sake of others. He has blessed you so that you will know Him, love Him, and so that you will be a blessing to others. Your salvation was a healing. Praise God. You went from death to life, from darkness to light. But your salvation was not only for your sake. It was for the sake of others and for the sake of the glory of Jesus. You see, Jesus heals with a purpose. But this man in this story today, we don't see a happy ending. He doesn't want the second healing. He's content with just walking. This man says, thanks, Jesus. I got what I needed. Stop bothering me. This man, we know this, this man ends up walking away from Jesus because immediately, you remember, the Pharisees come to him and they're like, hey, who healed you? That's a bad, he healed on the Sabbath. That's a bad thing. And he says, I don't know, some guy who said, take up your bed and walk. Then Jesus comes to him. He's like, oh, your name's Jesus. He runs back to the religious authorities who want to kill Jesus and says, hey, his name's Jesus. That's the guy who healed me. You're like, way to return the favor, man. You see, he, he, he got what he wanted from Jesus. And then he was willing to move on from Jesus, and he was even willing to see Jesus, you know, uh, accused by the Pharisees. This man wanted nothing to do with the second healing. He just wanted the physical healing. He wanted Jesus to restore his legs and his arms, but not his soul. And that ought to be a warning to us. But it also ought to be an invitation to us. Because if you're here today and you're a Christian, Jesus has saved you, not just so that you can go to heaven one day off in the distant future, but so that you can experience abundant life today and so that you can show that life to others. And as we prepare in a moment to take communion, I want you to notice one last thing. Um, every miracle in John's gospel is called a sign. John doesn't even use the word miracle. He always calls it a sign. And a sign is something that points to something greater, right? So I'm really into Marvel movies, you know, and I'm like super into WandaVision. It was awesome. If you haven't checked it out, great television show. But if you're familiar with Marvel, one of the things they do masterfully, they've got like 30, 25 movies and TV shows that all that tell one massive story. They're all connected. And what's amazing is a movie that was made six years ago might have some scene that seems meaningless in the context of that movie that you're watching, but then, ten, you know, six years later, you watch another movie and you realize that that conversation or that little moment was actually a, a sign, was actually a, a glimpse of what was going to happen later on in this next movie. That's what they do really well. It's really fascinating the way Marvel does it. But that's what a sign is. A sign is it's something in and of itself, but it gives you a glimpse into something greater. A sign always points to something that is greater. And the sign here in this passage is Jesus healing a man by the pool. And it points to two things. I believe it points to the cross and it points to the resurrection. See, this sign is a foretelling of the cross and it's a foretaste of the resurrection. So in the end, think about this. Jesus extends all his mercy and all his grace and his healing to this man. And immediately, the religious leaders get angry because Jesus is implying that he's equal with God and he's healing on the Sabbath. And verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So this is the event that sets off the religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus. The rest of Jesus' ministry is just going to be this story over and over again. Jesus doing something, it upsetting the religious leaders and them ultimately fixing themselves on the idea that he should be crucified. 
And Jesus isn't, he, knew, he knows everything, right? Jesus knew that by healing this man and giving this guy his life back, he knew that he would be laying his own life down. That's what the cross is. This man gets the blessing of Jesus, and Jesus gets the suffering on a cross. Do you see the correlation there? The cross is the punishment that we all deserve. Jesus certainly didn't deserve it. But Jesus takes on our sin, our shame, our suffering. He endures it for himself so that we can experience his healing. And so this story gives us a glimpse of the cross. You see one man being healed and Jesus being crucified in his place. But the story is, it's a foretelling of what will happen at the cross. But what I think is more beautiful is that it's a foretaste of the resurrection. We will be healed through Jesus' suffering. We all will. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's that there is coming a day where there will be a new heavens and new earth. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will give us new, glorified, resurrected bodies. You know, at that day, they said there were a multitude of invalids. And Jesus, only one of those men or women walked away with healing that day. Jesus left Bethesda, and there were multitudes of other people still in pain. But Jesus was, he wasn't, that wasn't the moment where everyone was healed. It was a foretaste of the moment where everyone was going to be healed. The sign points to something greater, and that something greater is that day when Jesus returns. He, he removes all traces of sin from this world. He casts out the enemy. He casts out sin and darkness and sickness and shame and all of those things. And he restores this earth, and it's him in our presence and us in his midst. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes and we will have resurrected bodies. Yeah. I, like I said, about a, I've been to the pool of Bethesda twice in my life. And um, it is a, it's a powerful place to be. Um, as many of you know, my son has uh, severe disabilities, cerebral palsy. And I remember when we were, when, when my wife, when we, my, my son was younger. We had a neurologist. My wife and I had a neurologist look at us. He didn't give us any hope. He just looked at us and said, yeah, your son's probably not ever going to walk. And I remember leaving, leaving the neurologist's office that day, just completely gutted. And my son, for years, it looked like he wasn't going to walk. And it was actually here at this church where my growth group, we prayed one year in 2000. 16 was it Beck? We started praying in January that my son would walk by Christmas. There was no sign, no, no indication that that would happen. And that summer, out of nowhere one day, uh, one of my son's physical therapists at his school sends my wife a video message. And it's my son walking down the hallway at school. And I remember, I remember there was a day when this verse came to my mind when he used to walk with a walker. And then when he started walking, we're like, well, he doesn't need it anymore. And we donated it to, you know, some company that could give it to another kid. And I remember when we donated it, I remember thinking of this line, pick up your mat and walk, because you don't need it anymore. And I just remember thinking, giving that, that walker away, being like, pick up your walker and walk, son. Like, you, God's healed you. And I remember, you know, going to the pool of Bethesda a couple times, and you look out at it, and I think of this, this God healing my son. He's walking. 
But I also think that my son's not fully healed. He still has cerebral palsy. He still has all these disabilities. There's so many things that he's excluded from. But my hope is not in this world. My hope is in a God who is a God of resurrection. Here's what I look forward to. There's coming a day in eternity when whatever it is that's impacting my son's brain, whatever deficiency is there, Jesus himself is going to heal it. My son's going to run. He's going to have intelligent conversations. Because this is a this story is a foretaste of what is to come. And so whatever you're dealing with today, whether you have a disability that you just wish God would heal, whether there is some sort of sin in your life that you feel like you're never going to overcome, this story is a foretaste of what's to come. You may not experience the healing today or tomorrow or even in this life, but there is coming a day where Jesus is making all things new. And you will have a resurrected, glorified body. Because Jesus defeated death. Because Jesus got out of a grave, we have life coming. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the cross and the resurrection. God, I thank you for the countless healing stories here in our church of people being healed from cancer, of um, uh, all sorts of stories of healing in in this faith family. But God, there's, for every story of healing, there's many stories where we're still waiting for that healing. But God, the resurrection and the promise of, a, of the resurrection of all things gives us confidence that that day is coming. That these light and momentary afflictions that we experience today will pale in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us. And that's only possible 